We'll be reading this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. We'll be reading into chapter 5. Um, our chapter and verse divisions, as most of you know, are not inspired of God. They were added by men to help us uh, follow along, and uh, this is perhaps one of the worst chapter divisions um, decided to be placed here uh, in the book of Acts. And so we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and read through chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, that would probably be a better place for a chapter break is after verse 31. Uh, as we get into verse 32, uh, giving us some historical background into the event of chapter 5. I'll bring it out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 511, God's word declares, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later, when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church, and upon all who heard these things. Well, this morning we get into a passage of Scripture that uh, is laying forth, really, and we've been looking at it throughout Acts, uh, the activity of the church. What are we involving ourselves in? And it really goes back to further develop what was introduced in Acts chapter 2, when it talked about what did the church do. And verse 41 and 42 said that those who gladly received his word were baptized. About 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. 
then fear came upon every soul. And this is the pattern that we are going to have uh, here as we are introduced into various facets of the church's life. What do we participate in? How do we engage ourselves in these acts of worship? And what's the result? And overwhelmingly, you're going to keep coming to this result. And the result is, is that fear comes upon everybody, not just the church, but the whole community is uh, engaged in, in a uh, fearfulness of what's going on, not just in terms of I'm afraid of it. Uh, certainly there's that facet, as we're going to see this morning. Um, we're not going to neglect that and deny that at all. There is a, that kind of fearfulness. There's also on the other perspective people always want to focus on is that that awe or that appreciation of it, that uh, sense of, of uh, respect for it. And certainly that's also engaged in this word of great fear falling upon uh, the people. And we see really everything in between as well. The idea that God is doing something. And when God is engaged in making this transformation in people's lives, that it is noteworthy. And that noteworthiness recognizes that if I am to commit myself to that same God, to that same salvation, I must be prepared in my life for that same transformation. And that's also enveloped in this idea of men being fearful, that fear falls upon us, that we have this sense of uh, that this isn't just a, um, a birthday party. This is something more substantial than that. This is a life changing commitment that has some demands placed upon it, upon me, that if I'm going to consider myself one of that number, that I'm going to participate in this kind of activity, that this is going to be the norm for my life, henceforth and forevermore, that I'm going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that I'm going to have to surrender uh, things that I deem acceptable, um, even proper, and could, and now adopt myself to a standard that God says is acceptable. And that's going to be in many facets of our life. And so we find them, uh, yes, the power of God at work in Acts chapter 2, and as a result, men were like, whoa, what is going on here? But also in the daily living of the saints... And in their corporate worship activity, it's going to have that same kind of effect upon society. And we've seen throughout chapter 2, chapter 3, and we're going to see it in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and following, that the response of the community is great respect, but also some fearfulness about what the demands of Christianity really entail. That this is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can kind of tuck in our back pocket and then live the life however we want, and then pull it out at the end of the game and show it to God and get into heaven. Society, by the not just the teaching, but by the living of the saints, recognize that this is something far more substantial than that. To call oneself uh, a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of his, was to place upon yourself the demands of a holy, holy, holy God. And we're going to see that played out in a very powerful fashion in one area of worship. And again, this is not 
the primary area of worship we looked at, we looked last week at an area of worship of prayer and of service. And we saw the demands of God upon us to be engaged in that activity, to be engaged in serving Him no matter the cost, and then to engage ourselves corporately as a body of saints in the activity of prayer as worship. And it needs to be done well and properly and without ceasing, the Bible says. That this is something we are are desiring of, that when we pray that God is responsive to that, but our prayer is not self-oriented, but service-oriented. Lord, don't protect me from harm. Don't protect me from persecution. Lord, give me boldness to confront even under the pressure of persecution. And God responds to that kind of praying that says, Lord, we want to do your will. Give me boldness to do that by filling his servants with his spirit. Well, one of the results of the powerful working of God in the early church that should, and from all indications, should have persisted throughout the entire church age was, or is described for us here in verse 32, and then broadened, really, to its full description in the verses and events to follow. But verse 32 is the foundation. We're going to spend more of our time here uh, than maybe you anticipated in preparation for the description of two, uh, both a, a positive example and a negative example. Verse 32 says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So we begin by understanding that there is a spiritual oneness there, but also a physical oneness there. There, there are one, the heart in the Eastern mindset is not a place where you fall in love. You know, I heart you. Um, they would have been very confused with that entirely. And so the bumper stickers back then on their chariots were actually I intestine you. Because, and they, so they had a little picture of intestines, you know, I intestine New York. Um, because that's where they felt love. They felt love in their bowels, and that's where they associated. So when you see that they had one heart, they had a, a singular purpose, a will, a, a drive, an interest, that they had one goal, and that was to please God. And they did that in unison that they did it with one accord, a one-mindedness. And so they, they, they submitted themselves to that one standard that is we want to please God in all that we do. And that drove them together, that unified them, that, that, that solidified them. That it could be described in this way that they were one in their heart. They were also one in their soul that is in their spirit, that they desired after this, certainly, but that they were one by the working of the Holy Spirit in agreement with and in accordance with their spirit. That they humbly submitted their spirit to God. Well, where does that show? And this, the author, Luke, quickly takes us to, is just just take one area to find out where that shows up. And he says, well, one area it shows up when we are knit together in purpose, in our heart, 
we are knit together in our spirit, we are also going to demonstrate it physically. And not just by uh, greeting one another with a holy kiss and things like that, um, but we're going to do that in our actions uh, with regard to what the rest of the verse describes. Neither, it says, did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. There was a physical commonality that was shared among them that was a natural outpouring of what was going on inside of them individually and as a body. That they were truly um, members of a single body of Christ, and therefore there was some physicality to the expression of what was going on in their heart. That we have one mind, we have one desire, we have one one heartbeat, and that is we want Christ glorified. We have one spirit about us. And as a spirit that is generated by the love of God, uh, that doesn't deny truth and holiness, so it, it, it embraces truth and holiness and righteousness. It embraces that and thus becomes true love. And so that oneness now takes on a physical manifestation. But again, even in this area of their possessions, of their material wealth, that uh, was certainly of varying degrees among their number, uh, we have a foundation. And the foundation of material sharing um, is one of understanding ownership. And this is where it begins. So verse 32 tells us to, that the first thing we find is that neither one did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own. And we extract from the body the idea that this is mine and that's yours. It's just gone. Nobody just thinks of things like that. And, and we might say, well, this is just socialism, Pastor. Um, it's, it'd be more appropriate to say that it's communalism, not communism. It's communalism. That is the association that these things, uh, these objects, while I have some control over them, some management authority over them granted to me by God, ultimately aren't mine. They aren't my own. That is, they are not intended or granted to be my God, to be used up simply on my own interests and my own uh, comforts, my own enjoyments. That is, there's something greater to the things that God owns and puts into your control. There's a greater purpose to them. And it goes back to our one-heartedness and our one spirit or soul. That we have this longing to serve God, which we saw again was evident in our prayers of the early church in Acts chapter 4. There are prayers that aren't selfish. They are service-oriented. How can I serve you better? Both to the community, to the lost, and also to my family, the church. And so now, in this area of possessions, the one-heartedness and the one spirit or soul of the church was centered now upon a different view of ownership. They had transferred that ownership to Christ. 
And by doing so, they recognize that my management of it is not for the benefit of me anymore, but for the benefit of Christ's body, for the church, for his people. That I'm going to invest myself and my worldly goods in such a fashion that I will care for others within the church family as though I was caring for myself. And this Paul describes in Philippians as esteeming others as better than ourselves. And that's not depreciating us, it's appreciating them. It's raising them up, not putting ourselves down. That they raise them up above our view of self, that we can now minister to them. And this was the focal point of the church's giving, was ministry one to another, uh, even when that later on developed into a missionary force, um, they were supporting believers who were going out with the gospel. They weren't supporting unbelievers, the lost. It was a sharing with believers to meet their needs as they went forth with the gospel. And again, the entire book of Philippians is written in response um, to a church that was participating regularly in, in Paul's ministry and as a thank you letter for their gifts that he had received time and again from their hand. And whether those gifts came or didn't come, he was still going to serve God. He had been in, in want. He had worked with his own hands. It was good that he might uh, make enough for himself and enough for him to share. But he also was willing to receive from the hand of the believers uh, their gifts. So we find that the foundation to this kind of service begins by a transitioning of our thoughts over what is mine to what is Christ's. That we transferred title, ownership. Now you all carry titles around. I'm pretty sure most of you have cars, possess a title to those cars. If you don't, we need to have a conversation, okay? Because if you don't, if that car doesn't really belong to you, you shouldn't be driving around. So we have a title. It has our name, says it was conveyed to us on a certain date, and our address to uh, stipulate who we are to differentiate us from someone else that may carry our same name. We have a title deed, if you will, perhaps to your property or if it's not being held by a bank or mortgage company, as most of us is ours. Um, we have deeds and titles and, and gives us the right of ownership to that. And it, it's almost worthwhile for us to maybe sit down and start writing out some deeds and saying, well, this possession I transfer to Jesus Christ. And maybe that's an exercise that we need to do sometimes to really draw out where our heart is. Have we conceived of this idea of ownership being one of Christ and that I am now really in the role of management and not as owner? And even within that context, the Bible gives some very clear warnings about mismanaging God's Gifts, talents in that case. 
So it's not that we are now hands off and can't decide anything with regard to that, for there's certainly a great liberty that God gives us within that role of being his stewards, but foundational to doing it right. And in fact, I would contend that you cannot do stewardship right until you have come to this place where you have made this declaration. And that's what it says. Nobody said that anything was their own. Nobody would declare that. That's mine. Now that's very un-American. Would you agree with that? We're pretty sure we want to say, no, that's mine. That's mine. Mine. That's mine. Don't touch that. That's mine. This is our way. And no one in that early church was wanted to say that. They just didn't want to use those words. It's not mine. Because I've already given to Jesus Christ my life and I've trusted in Him for my future, not just for the distant future after death, but for the future, which is tomorrow and the next hour and next week and next year and my retirement and all of that. I have given to Him my very life. My breath is His to use or to stop at His desire. And now it is a foolish thing, having given him all of who I am, to then claim ownership of this stuff that is of temporal nature. And this is the foundational spirit that comes out of, first, a one-heartedness and a one-soulness that is driven by the love of God to transform lives. And it manifested itself in the church very quickly in the area of, of first recognizing this stuff isn't really my own. I know my name is on it, and 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 legally we're going to find out that there really is legal right that they had to all those. They didn't surrender legal right. So we're not going to have a sign-up table in the back for you to transfer everything you own to the, into the church's name. It's just not going to happen. We're not going to do that. You're still going to have legal rights to those things. But it's a spirit, an attitude of the heart that recognizes that because my name is on this deed or on this registration or on this uh, uh, title that (laughs) it makes me a temporary owner. It really makes me a, a manager. That It's on loan to me from my Lord, from the King of Kings, from the creator of all that exists. And therefore, I have an accountability before him of how I'm going to employ, use, or expend this benefit that he has given me. And so, we see a foundational attitude of recognizing that ownership is is now passé. It's just time to stop worrying about that kind of concept. We are now part of the body of Christ, and and I've surrendered everything to Him, and so it it doesn't is doesn't make any sense not to declare Him to be owner of all that I own or once owned. He has owned my sin for me. It is appropriate now. For him to own all that I am 
and all that I possess. And out of that spirit, out of that philosophy of ownership, it was a simple step then to go to the next place in verse 32 and says they had all things in common. Once I recognize Christ as that one that needs to be glorified in all that I do, all that I say, all that I own, all that I spend, all that I borrow, um, once I recognize the necessity of that, then um, sharing becomes normal. The new normal. That can be asked of me, demanded of me, and and I will care for it. I, I will reciprocate. I, I'll respond as Christ responded. And and we've just seen one example that uh, should just be echoing forward throughout the book of Acts. And that was back in chapter 3 where Peter and John were confronted with a man begging. And what's his response? I don't have any silver or gold. That tells you that when you think about who the needy were here in this verse, who had some resources and who didn't have resources, among the people without resources were a bunch of fishermen who stopped fishing three years ago. You know who they've been living off of? You're not going to like this. Out of Luke, we find out that they were living off of the ladies that were using all their resources to support Christ and the disciples as they are traveling and make sure they had food and cared, were cared for. And so among the people that needed some sharing was Peter and John themselves. They had no silver. I have nothing to give you of the material nature of this world, but I do have something, <laughs> something more valuable than that to you, I'm sure. And if you talk to this gentleman, I'm pretty sure uh, in the early church, he would have said, let's see, I could get a, uh, a few pieces of coin, or I could walk. I don't think that's a hard one to decide between. So he valued, he understands the value of what the church is providing, and, and we come to a couple of guys, Peter and John, and they are way outside of their, <laughs> of their uh, training. They are trained fishermen. And God has made them fishers of men. So among the number here that you think of that had possessions, um, don't rank Peter and John among them very highly because they didn't have nothing. They're walking to the temple without a few coins to, to toss in a hat. But they are carrying the power of God with them. And so they're going to share it. They're having all things in common. And verse 33 uh, gives us again the re- the expected result. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. That is, that God was blessing them. That in the midst of this activity, of this oneness, of this commonality, of this of this sharing, on a level that that hadn't been really seen in their society, it, it really went against the grain of, of what the world says should be going on. Um, God's grace was there. The, the disciples are at 
the business of declaring the resurrection. They're the eyewitnesses. And they're going to focus their attention on it. In fact, a little bit later on when we get to um, chapter 6, um, and the disciples are confronted with a, of expanding role of caring for all the monies that it came in, uh, their conclusion was that um, we don't want to have to deal with that. Here's what their statement is. Verse 4 of chapter 6. It says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So when you go back to chapter 4 and we find that, that all men are sharing, and as a result we find the apostles out there with great power gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were the eyewitnesses sharing it with everyone. And the evidence is that they themselves were among those being supported by the common sharing of the church. It wasn't limited to them. And in fact, from what I can tell, they drew very little from it, if, any, if, if much at all, on several occasions. The fact is, is that there were some in Jerusalem with, with need. And certainly those from out of town were among them. And there were some within the church with great assets. But part of the one facet of their giving enabled the liberty for the apostles to continually address prayer and the teaching of God's Word. That they were not going to be saddled with these other responsibilities. For of necessity, the church was needing that above anything else. And so God's grace, His favor was upon them, all of them. And now we get into the specifics of how this worked in verses 34 and following. How did this one heart and one soul, uh, this change of attitude about ownership that brought forth a desire and a willingness to openly share so that the apostles could do their job of witnessing the resurrection and God's hand is upon us all, how did it work? And we're given some insight by Luke into the logistics of it all in verses 34 and following. It says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Why? For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And so we find that there was an ingathering of resources, and those resources were brought forth, laid at the apostles' feet, and they recognized the responsibility of caring for that, in addition to the resources being brought to them, also being brought to their attention were the needs among the church. And remember, we're not talking about a church of 60, we're talking about a church of well over 5,000 men. Remember? We've reached 5,000 men, minimum. That's family units, if you will. 5,000 families. Um, which means the church was likely closer to 30,000 people. I know we think a family is 3.1, 
um, but not back then. And so 5,000 men, and so this was a pretty significant responsibility that the apostles are carrying, and they are going to later transfer it because they are not very good at it, to tell you the truth. They kind of mess up. They try. They put their effort at it for a while, um, but they recognize this is not really what we were called to do, but it, it was part of the liberal giving. It wasn't something that we find them teaching, but the liberality of the people said, we're going to put it to you. You meet the needs. And as the needs became evident and became known, they were met to such a degree that it says that no one in the church was lacking anything. They weren't lacking. And by lacking, I don't mean that they were, that they, um, that they all had ice cream to eat every night. Okay. Um, that is, they were not, they were not, they were not lacking any of the necessities of life. And the Bible makes that a very small list of food and raiment. We would add, of course, lodging and transportation, and we would go on and on and on, right? Um, God's list is pretty small. This is that they weren't lacking. That when they were confronted, they were praising God. Their needs were largely met, and whether that meant that uh, upper rooms were opened up for their housing and in a temporary setting because Many of these people weren't from Jerusalem. They had ingathered for that time from Passover to Pentecost. There was pilgrims coming in, hearing God's word, responding, and, and not wanting to disperse themselves too quickly because this is where things are happening. This is the only place you're going to hear the words of life. This is where the apostles are teaching. and They're going to try to stay resident there for a while. Well, we find that we have a couple examples. One is Joseph, and you don't know Joseph by his, that's the Greek, the Hebrew would be Joseph. Um, he was, uh, they, you know him by his nickname. His nickname was Barnabas. And so Barnabas, uh, which just means son of encouragement, uh, he was the guy that just made everyone feel better. He just, he just, encouraged everyone he encountered. They all were lifted up and as a result of his work. And we find that work not focused um, on just teaching or patting you on the back, but we find that um, this Levite, so we know his tribe, this is a member of the church, is almost exclusively at this point, well it is exclusively at this point Jewish. This Levite, who isn't from Jerusalem, it says that he was of the country of Cyprus, had some land, um, whether it was family land in Israel or land in Cyprus. It says he sold it. He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And the indication is he brought all of it. He sold it. His needs were met. He had wealth of his own, and many of the Levites lived pretty affluent lives. Um, he had this property. He sold that. He brought it. He had no use for that money for himself. It was singularly for the needs of the church, and he laid it at the apostles' feet in its entirety, and it was well known. And so we have that positive example. There's an individual who says, I have this. I don't really know why I have it. I, I can live without it. Um, these people need to stay here. We all need to stay here in, these, in the precincts of Jerusalem so that we can uh, just be strengthened. And uh, I don't know how many of them realized what was coming down the road, not too long from now. They were going to be scattered. It was 
critical that they be taught as well and as deeply and as thoroughly as possible before that scattering occurred when through a guy named Paul, Saul, um, that, that persecution came out of the church and men just scattered out of Jerusalem. Whether they knew that was coming or not, they sensed the necessity that those who receive Christ as their Savior be grounded, be rooted in their faith. And so their needs would be met. And they put those temporal needs as a level of importance that certainly doesn't compare to the spiritual needs but they recognized that they had temporal resources that John and Peter didn't have. Peter and John didn't have silver and gold. Barnabas did. <laughs> he could encourage in this fashion and another fashion. He made himself available. In fact, he's going to join Paul on a missionary journey. He's going to go on another missionary journey of his own with, with John Mark. And uh, the evidence is that he can support himself. This man didn't need any funding outside of that which God had put into his hand. And he turned it over entirely. We're going to be studying Barnabas a little bit more significantly when we get into that facet when he goes off to seek, seek for Saul. But we find this individual is an example of, of there were some within the church with lots of material resources and they're going to put it to use. For, it's for the needs of the body. We come to chapter 5 and we find somebody else with some material resources. There's no indication that there is a lot of variation between Ananias and Barnabas. That these two were both wealthy individuals in the church. That uh, they, they both had possessions, whatever possession this one is. The other one, we are told it was land. Um, this this one we have described as, there's just the possession. He sold it, he and his wife. Verse 2 tells us that he kept back part of the proceeds, which in and of itself wasn't the problem. The problem was his presentation of it. Now, we're not told that explicitly here early on in the story. We really don't figure that out until later on when Peter asks a simple question of his wife, Sapphira. The simple question that we're going to come to um, in verse 8 is, as Peter answered, or tell me whether you sold the land for so much. See, the question wasn't whether they wanted to give just some or all. The question was whether how they wanted to present it. And what they did was they presented this gift as though it was just like Barnabas's, and I am presenting this as the total selling price of my possession. And so Peter doesn't say, is this how much you gave? But rather, is this how much you sold the land for? So you have this possession... Uh, of whether it was again in Jerusalem or from their home, we don't know. Wherever that land was that was yours, you have title to it. Um, it is legally, uh, no one's taking claim to it. 
This is of your own free will. And that's going to be a principle we're going to get to here very quickly. The issue was that they wanted to be applauded by men as if they had the same spirit, the same heart, the same uh, principle, and the same uh, gift as Barnabas. So they present it as this is what the total selling price was. The problem wasn't in holding back part of it. The problem was is that they didn't admit to holding back part of it. They didn't want to uh, have people think, well, we only gave half or we only gave three-fourths. They they wanted to tell people that this is what we sold it for and we're giving you the whole price and we're laying at the apostles' feet. And you can anticipate the answer to Paul, to Peter's question, why did you lie? Well, I think all of us can anticipate the answer, can't we? Ananias' fire never got a chance to answer, by the way. Why'd you lie? Oh, dead. You've lied to God. And so let's go back and think about why. I don't think that's too far-fetched for us to put ourselves in place of Ananias and Sapphira and think about why would they lie? Why would you sell a piece of land and bring only a percentage of it to the church and claim that it was all of it? Why would anyone do that? I don't think that's a hard question to answer, is it? But fundamentally, it wasn't about the church. And Peter very quickly redirects and says, you know, if you've done this to get a claim from the church to have us appreciate you more or, or um, to, to rejoice in your giving uh, and its generosity, um, that's not even relevant because you're not giving to us. You're not giving to the apostles. You're not giving to the church. You're not fundamentally giving to a man. He says, the one you're lying to isn't us. Because the one you're giving to isn't really us. The one you're lying to, the one you're trying to steal glory from, is the Holy Spirit, who is God. You've not lied to men, you've lied to God. And behind this questioning of Peter is, a, is another facet of the principle of ownership. That when we bring forward this token of our love for God and our commitment to Him, and that's all it is, a token, I don't care what percentage it is, it's still just that in comparison to what He has done for us. And so we bring forth this and we lay it out there and while it sits at the apostles' feet, while they take it into their hands and then distribute it into the hands of those with need, um, we can very easily say, well, I gave it to the church or I gave it to the apostles and they gave it to so-and-so and such-and-such. Um, that's really not what giving's all about. And if that in your mind is what your giving is, then you need to start investigating the questions of Peter more closely. Who are you engaging in this act of giving? Why are you doing it? And that question is still relevant today. Why do we do it? 
You see, most preachers today are answering the question, how much should you do it? (laughs) I don't really care. I don't see anywhere in here that Peter and John cared. They really wanted to know why. You see, we want to make much about whether it's 10%, is that gross, or is that net, and um, all of these other statements, and there's people that are getting wound up and and uh, just hammering their people with that. You've never heard me hammer that, nor will you. Because fundamentally, um, that's like treating a symptom instead of dealing with the disease. The disease is a lack of oneness in heart and in spirit. The disease is that that you believe everything is yours instead of God's. And I don't want, the church doesn't want, in fact, I'm going to go, God doesn't want your giving when it's done out of a spirit that is infected by such a disease. That's why it says that God loves a cheerful giver. This is what he desires. Not one who is seeking out what is the minimum that God requires of me and shame for pastors for leading their people into that concept. For most of us in this culture, 10% is just too little. Because we have way too much left over for ourselves. Barnabas brings the whole amount because my needs are met. I'm cared for. And and this land, all I was going to do is get richer off of it. So I'm going to sell that and I'm going to give the entirety to the church. To meet the needs, they need to be taken care of. You address those, and I don't want control over it. I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet, that is. I relinquish not only ownership, because ownership I relinquish in my heart, remember? So ownership is gone. That was gone back there. What I am relinquishing is stewardship. And so I'm giving this over to you. I'm saying, you distribute it wherever it's needed. I'm not going to sit here and try to figure out where it's best applied. I'm going to put it at the apostles' feet. I'm going to let you as a body decide where it is best used. You and I think, well, that's finally giving up ownership. No, ownership was surrendered at the cross. Now I am surrendering stewardship of it. I'm saying this is my act of worship. My act of stewardship is to put it in the hands of the body of Christ and thus really give it over to God and say, I'm not in control. And as the Sapphira come in and they want all the privilege, all the blessing, all the accolades that come alongside of such an act, but without the cost. They've got some of their own interests at heart still, and so they come and they give it and they 
deceive. They think they can deceive. And Peter, of course, very quickly addresses it. It recognizes that this is not the work of one heart and one soul who recognizes God's possession of all that I am and now uh, that I just want to share. But this is the work of Satan. To fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You have kept back part of the price of land for yourselves. Then verse 4 tells us a little bit of expectation. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? And these two questions belie the fact that this was not a demand made of Ananias and Sapphira by the leadership of the church. The apostles didn't say, hey, we need you guys all, we, uh, we got a you know, thermometer over here, we got a chart, we've got to fill up, we've got to meet our budget, we've got this budget here, we need you guys, pass the plate again. That was nothing of what was going on in this community called the church. Rather, they recognize that it's yours, uh, we're making no demands upon it, we're not making a requirement of it. We, it's yours to control in that sense, in that legal sense. And so the church does not have an expectation, and it needs to be of your free will. And that's where we get to in our giving, is that this is a free act, but let it be understood as an act not before me, not before the church treasurer, not before the deacons, it is an act before God. This is an act of worship between you and your Creator that matters. And God is measuring it. He really is. To the degree that Paul and Philippians says that this is going to be credited to your heavenly account. God keeps books in heaven? Better believe it. Lots of them. Just read Revelation 20, 2021. You'll find there's lots of books. And so it is an act of worship, a token of what I've already done in my heart, and that is surrender everything to Christ. And now I can take this excess that is beyond the necessity of my life, and I can give it. And the Bible says not to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's, you say, well, that's not even possible, really. Uh, I have to know what I'm giving. But the idea is that my liberality is such that I'm not necessarily counting the cost. And as a fire, they counted it out. And they're like, oh, boy, we could, you know, we could get that new fridge with this. They didn't have refrigerators, by the way. You know, we could put that addition on the back or we could, you know, make that upper room. We could carpet the upper room. I don't know what they had intended for that. But Peter's saying, if you, if you can't give it, don't want to give it. Don't give it. It's yours. We are not making any demands of it. We are not threatening you that if you don't give, that we're, that uh, judgment of God is going to be upon you. Nor we're going to give you any ridiculous statement that the health, wealth, gospel people are on TV telling you, send me that thousand dollars and you'll get a hundredfold blessing. No, it's very simple. God put these things in your control. You're going to answer to him for how you manage that. What God desires for you to do is to worship him by your giving. 
You cannot do that without a spirit and a heart that wants to share, that wants to communicate the love of God. That says, I want to worship God today by demonstrating that I am thankful for all He's given to me and He's given me so much and I have so much left over after I'm done giving today that maybe I need to give more. And that's essentially what Joseph did. I don't need this money. I, my needs are taken care of. I'm, I'm more than able to care for myself. This is a resource that I want put to use for the benefit of the body of Christ. And I said, Sapphira are counting it. And they wanted to get the most bang for their buck. We're going to give a significant, I'm sure it was a significant percentage of what they sold it for. Everyone knows what land goes for reasonably. How much they kept back, I don't know. But they wanted the big accolades. They wanted the the big blessing as if they had committed the same act of sacrifice as Barnabas and it caught them because you cannot lie to God. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of the churches would be empty if we had the same thing happening in our churches today every time someone lied. I tell you regularly that I'm one of the most lied to people on the planet. Pastors are. Um, I'll be there Sunday. I'll do this. I'll do that. And they don't. And I don't ask them this question. (laughs) Why have you lied to me? You haven't lied to me. You've lied to God. Um, When it comes to your worship, um, it's not me that's going to hold you accountable. And that's true about your singing. You don't want to sing. You don't want to employ your voice to sing praises to God. I'm not going to come up there and beat on you. You're accountable to God for your worship. That's who you're worshiping. Your worship doesn't come to me. It's all before the Lord. So if you're holding out, you're holding out on God. You don't want to pray. You're not accountable to me for that. Because you're not praying to me. You're praying to God. You don't want to give. I'm not going to hammer you over that. Because you're not accountable to me. Because you're not giving to me. You're giving to God. You don't want to share Christ with your lost friends and neighbors and relatives. I'm not going to beat you over the head with that. Because you're not accountable to me. You're accountable to God. Now, within the context of local church, we have responsibility. Those are acts of worship, by the way. Righteousness, also an act of worship, but it's a demand. And we are told to hold each other accountable in that regard. That I'm here to hold you accountable to be righteous. And so I'm not going to address your giving. And I'm not going to address your praying. I'm not going to address your witnessing. I'm going to address your heart. Where righteousness reigns. Or Satan manipulates you. Where's your heart? What are your goals? Where are you at? Where are you going? You see, the other things will manifest themselves. And God can judge. He's more than able to hold you accountable for acts of worship because you're not worshiping me. But what we do together as a body of Christ is to say, now, this isn't righteous. What does Peter hold him accountable for? 
lying. You see, you didn't have to give it all. We didn't demand it. But now you've lied. And now you have brought sin, active sin, into our body. And that we must address. Yes, you've lied to God. um, And as his agent, here we are. We're going to have to address it as a body. And he does so. And boom, God intervenes in a very powerful way and kills both Ananias and then his wife Sapphira. And as a result, twice it says, great fear came upon all those who heard these things. They didn't have to be there. In fact, the evidence is there weren't a whole lot of people there. There were some young men there. The apostles were there. Uh, Peter, of course, is the speaker um, Ananias is, is there, and then later Sapphira comes in. Don't know where she spent. Uh, maybe she was out spending the money for three hours. I don't know. Maybe she was out there at the mall. And just the hearing. God holds us that accountable for our worship. Yes, he does. He's going to hold you accountable. I'm going to sing with all my heart. Sometimes my voice is better some Sundays than other Sundays. But it doesn't matter because, you know, sometimes I'm squeaky and sometimes I really got it. Um, But the heart is still singing as loud as it can. Voice, sometimes I strain it. And I had seminary professors that scolded me for doing that, for yelling. Never yell. Ruin your voice and it's your job. Giving is the same category. It's your worship. I'm more concerned with a heart that's counting, a heart that's willing to lie and deceive, and a heart that's self-interested, that's materialistic. Oh, now that's an issue I want to address. I want us to have one heart, one spirit. I want us to be a body of saints that says, it's the Lord's. And so you ask it of me, I'm going to, you, you ask me to walk a mile, we'll go too, if that's necessary. Whatever gets the job done on your behalf. My resources are yours. Because they're not even really yours, they're God's. For his work. And the spirit of Ananias and Sapphira is one that destroyed worship, would have destroyed the testimony of Jesus Christ, And for that, it needed to be addressed, and addressed quickly. And God did so in a very direct and powerful way to set a precedent. And that precedent is, you take care what you do in the name of Jesus. You take great care about your worship. That's why we take, as we went through First and Second Corinthians, took some time to reconsider some aspects of our worship because it matters to God. He takes it seriously, and he is counting. He's recording. We'll put it like that. He's recording. And he knows those that come full of 
the heart of God, the Spirit of God, who is declaring the things of God. He knows those that are coming thinking that they are going to get a hundredfold blessing out of it if they only give it to this certain guy who you know, takes his little prayer shawl and rubs it over it. I don't know what they do anymore. Once we understand ownership and get that resolved, once we hunger and thirst after righteousness as a body and get that resolved, once we recognize that our worship is accountable before God, that that's who we're singing to and of, that that's who we're giving to and for, that that's who we're testifying and witnessing to, that's who we're praying to, then, brethren, great fear should come upon us in our worship. And it should... We should be coming into this room a little trembling. Now, I've been pulling some of your kids aside and trying to communicate that to them the last few weeks because I've been studying this. <laughs> it's time that we started entering the room of worship with fear and trembling, realizing that what we do here, we are going to be held accountable to before God. If I come in here in a lying spirit, that I'm going to come here and sing, but my heart isn't rejoicing. I'm going to come in here and give, yet I'm counting it and I'm, and I'm miserly in it. And God isn't pleased in that. And we must count this time of worship as, as something to approach fearfully. And in our casual society, we have lost touch with that. Not just in our giving, but in every facet that there's a fearfulness to walking into a place where we have designated this hour as a time to engage in the most noble things that men can engage in, and that is to sing praises of our God, to give of what He has given to us, to return it to Him in honor and in thankfulness, to come before His very throne with prayers. The old adage is that familiarity breeds contempt. I fear that that may be the case when we do not come ready for worship and anticipating that I need to do this right. It's not just enough to be here, but to be right here. And so I want to Worship as a young lady in a, in a godly man or whatever that requires of me from God's word. I want to come here as a father and husband to worship in a godly manner, whatever God's word requires of me to do that. I want to come here as a child and be invested with the significance of what's going on here. This is church. It's worship. And it is for God. Not for me. Not for the pastor. Not to keep up appearances in the community. We are singing to the Almighty. We are giving to the one who has given to us his son. We are praying to the one who owns the cattle on every hill. 
this is really all about worship. And giving is just one facet of that. He owns your voice, whether you give it to him or not. He made it. (laughs) He owns your pocketbook, whether you admit it or not. He's going to burn it up one day. With fervent heat, melt it all. This worship is important. Whether it's done one day a week for an hour, or whether it's every day they met house to house as they did back then, um, every time we engage ourselves in worship, whether it's bowing our heads in prayer before the evening meal, we need to remind ourselves a little bit with fear and trembling that God, the God, is listening, watching, and participating with us. And we need to approach these things with a little more fear, a little more trembling. The fear didn't come upon just those outside that heard it. Verse 11 says, great fear came upon all the church. The church realized, man, we can't play games at this. Because God is paying attention. (laughs) He's not asleep. He's not feeling blessed just because we showed up. He expects my best in righteousness always. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you. Can I cease to give thanks to your name? For the preponderance of blessing you've put upon us through Christ. That truly awes us, overwhelms us. And yet, too many times we count it a small thing. We think that our gifts brought to you are of greater value. Lord, forgive us of this attitude. That somehow we have blessed you by being here. Giving our minimum. Lord, we confess this as the error of Ananias and his wife's fire. To think that we could deceive you, with sickly, crippled, and tainted sacrifices. And you demand our very best. Lord, we shamefully pray for your blessing. So that we can add it to our own coffers instead of to your service. Forgive us. And Lord, we are challenged and pray that we might 
Examine ourselves. Consider our ways, as your prophets said. We might train one another and our children and those that are guests and visit here. This time is holy, set apart, unique, rare. Requires something of us. Lord, we need your help in all this. We know that if we should rightly respond this morning, that your Spirit will come alongside us and convict us where that is necessary, encourage us, strengthen us, illuminate us. The Lord requires something of us first to respond. So Lord, we thank you for the message of your word and the example of Barnabas and the further example really of Anais Sapphira as well. We pray that we might draw closer to what you want your church to be like because of our time in your word this day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.